0: One of the extraordinary things about clothes is that they open the door on the past in a way that few things can. Ever since human beings first covered themselves tens of thousands of years ago, textiles have been our second skin, protecting us, warming us and allowing us to decorate and display ourselves. Textiles travel with us through life, bearing the scars of our failures and the triumph of our hopes. How we dress ourselves or are dressed by others helps us to see things in an honest light. This episode is about what clothes tell us about privilege and dispossession, how land-owning and slavery can be given meaning through clothes at the time of America's founding fathers.
1: I think textiles ground us. They are fragile, but they endure hundreds of years, whereas humans can't make it to a century. They're durable, they're tactile. All of the the grandoise ideas we may build up in our heads about what really happened these bring us back in touch with reality. Sometimes it is grander than what we thought, sometimes it is more humble than what we thought. Amanda Isaac works with the
0: textiles of two of the most famous people in American history, George and Martha Washington, at Mount Vernon, their home in Virginia. The Washingtons are giants of the American story, George, the successful military commander who beat the British in the American War of Independence, was one of the founding fathers and America's first president. And Martha, his wife, America's first first lady. So much has been written and said about them. It's hard to imagine that there's any way of understanding at this point who they really were as living breathing people, so encrusted have they become by legend. But their clothes take us closer to them and tell us stories about who they were that would not otherwise be accessible. That's what this episode is about in part, seeing how clothes can take us behind the facade of a public persona. But it's about more than that because Mount Vernon, the plantation they owned, was not just their home. It was home to more than 300 people in total. Many of those were enslaved people. Others were contracted craftsmen and women, hired laborers and day workers who came in from the locality. One of Mount Vernon's functions as a farm was to produce textiles. Sheep were kept and flax was grown in the hope that those who lived there, apart from the Washington family, could be clothed from the land. One of the aims was to make it self-sufficient in cloth, so this episode is about the threads of survival at Mount Vernon and what they tell us, not just about the Washingtons, but about the entire community that lived and worked there. Welcome to Haptic and Hughes, Tales of Textiles. My name is Jo Andrews, and I'm a hand weaver, interested in what textiles tell us about the story of humanity, and in particular, what they have to say about the often unrecorded lives of those who made cloth and fabric. I visited Mount Vernon at the height of last summer, It's a hot day at Mount Vernon, high above the Potomac River in Virginia. This was the home of America's first president, George Washington, victorious general of the Revolutionary War against the British Crown. It's a beautiful spot and something of a shrine for Americans, more than a million of whom come here every year to learn more about this man who has become a hero to so many. It's a miracle, in many ways, that there's anything to see. For years after the Washington's deaths, Mount Vernon slowly deteriorated. Until one day in the 1850s, a woman called Louisa Cunningham floated past on a boat on the Potomac River and looked up. At the dilapidated mansion. She wrote to her daughter Anne Cunningham. Seeing that the men of the United States are unwilling to save the estate, perhaps the women of America should do so instead. Undaunted by the task, Anne and others raised the $200,000 they needed in one of the country's first ever popular fundraising campaigns. They secured the property just in time, but shortly afterwards, the American Civil War broke out. Ever since, the Ladies of Mount Vernon have run this establishment,
1: and they still do today. Here's Amanda. One thing to appreciate is when the Mount Vernon Ladies Association got started, they did not have a lot of money. They knew they had this aging structure that was desperately in need of repairs they had what launched one of the earliest and largest grassroots funding campaign and they managed to save the house but then the civil war broke out and that of course changed everything so the priorities at first were about the architecture and these women i would say they were needle workers themselves they were very in touch with the value of textiles in that regard but the first priority was getting the house and getting the furniture. And it was only later, as they got those things in shape, if you will, that they had the opportunity to begin to think about, well, what, what would be the best curtains or bed covers and things like that. And much of those, the early acquisitions were gifts because they didn't have a lot of funds to go out and purchase things. And, as they could, they consulted with the experts in the field at the time we know in the the nineteen thirties and forties they looked to the curator of the Boston Museum of Fine Arts, Gertrude Townsend, to help them identify appropriate eighteenth century textiles and to bring those in and they did and it was fantastic for that era shortly after that, though, philosophies changed in the realization that wait a minute, these are two hundred year old textiles. Rather than putting them in a historic structure that is subject to dirt and dust and fluctuating temperatures and sunlight damage, we need to care for those differently. And then the whole shift began to take place, moving to the use of reproduction textiles in in historic museums. And then the thinking
0: changed again, and people began to understand that the textiles
1: had new and different stories to tell. So... The understanding that textiles, particularly clothing, is not just an illustration about a historic period, but tells us about those individuals, about the, the economics and the relationships and the physicality of these. It's the, this whole understanding of material culture as history that has been Understanding textiles as material culture, as artifacts that have important intrinsic information about the individuals who made them and used them, the relationships that brought them from one place to another the economics, all that type of historical thinking and philosophy, that attitude is new to this generation.
0: And that led to a reassessment of the
1: textiles that Mount Vernon holds. In 2015 we started looking at the textile collection with a new eye. There were several handful of important pieces that were very well known and well published, Martha Washington's gown, George Washington's coat, for instance, and that had been exhibited on a regular basis. But there were hundreds of other items, uh, dozens of accessory types of stockings and pockets and caps and Then hundreds of these fragments from their clothing, there was a whole wealth of other material that, because of the state of it and because it was so delicate, really hadn't been researched or exhibited or very well known. And that trail leads back to
0: the reality of what it was like to be Martha and George Washington, and places them back in the context of their age.
1: What I find so interesting about the textiles and what they tell us about Martha, George and Martha Washington is, in many respects, they confirm the shape and the sizes of the man and the woman, that these, these are ordinary humans. They're not divinity. They're not any, anything superhuman, any superheroes. They were humans subject to, to all the trials and tribulations of being stuck in a body you know, on this earth. And on another level, too, the Washingtons, they were elite. They had incredible wealth. Washington was one of the richest Americans at the time of his death. But at the same time, their choices in terms of their garments, their furnishing, textiles, were relatively modest, and the emphasis on relative compared to what other elites had access to and and decided to use in Europe and England even in the Far East. So textiles really have that corrective property on your your historical imagination and understanding. We
0: can see that the Washingtons cared greatly about their clothes and the quality of them.
1: They wanted the best. We see that in their their writings and their correspondence of... The back and forth with tailors and Mantua makers or the lace seller, Mrs. Washington gets particularly frustrated with a woman who tries to sell her lace that is not of the finest quality, is not what she thinks she's paying for. And they are very aware of those subtle differences in quality between grades of lace or grades of linen or silk, more so than we we might think today and very in touch with changing fashions. What is the latest in London? There was the continual tension and battle between the colonists and the merchants in London, the merchants in London wanting to get goods out and out of their shops, and the folks in the colonist wanting to get the most fashionable, not just what you could offload to us, type of goods.
0: Martha Washington bought Spitalfield silks woven by Huguenot weavers in London which we explored in episode 28, and Mount Vernon still has pieces of this. It's the first time I had ever seen a piece of fabric designed by the great Anna Maria Garthwaite, the first known professional woman textile designer. Mount Vernon also holds parts of Martha's wedding dress from her marriage to George Washington, a glorious yellow silk lampass that probably dates from the 1720s. It also startled me that this great hero of the American Revolution, George Washington, had his tailor
1: in London and ordered his clothes from there. But before the Revolution, they're wanting the best, they're wanting the finest quality of tailoring and fit. And at that time, England is the place to go because, of course, here in Virginia, on the banks of the Potomac, you are hundreds of miles from the nearest urban center. The biggest one at that time would have been Philadelphia. Not easy to go go shopping and get what you needed there. Williamsburg is several hundred miles of the other direction, but again, it's a small town. And so the shortest route in some ways is to go across the ocean by a ship that you can get in a few months what you need and what you know is the best quality in the latest fashion and all. After the revolution, though, particularly as they're traveling more, and then during the presidency, when they're in New York and Philadelphia, they do shift to using uh, local tailors and dressmakers and all that. Now, they are still importing their fabric from England. Those merchants are also getting things from French and advertising the latest French fashions.
0: The collection at Mount Vernon is extensive and beautifully cared for in special storage rooms. It has everything from George Washington's breeches to Martha Washington's needlework, and it was a privilege to be shown round. There are two pieces, though, that caught my heart. They both belong to Martha Washington. One is her bathing gown, which survives as an entire piece this is a long shift in an indigo and plain linen checked weave
1: designed for maximum modesty. This is the sort of piece where we wonder, we don't know the maker, was it done by one of these local seamstresses? Was it done here on the state by enslaved women? At that era, it might have been someone like Betty, who was the seamstress and close attendant for Mrs. Washington. It's Very simply constructed, just like a shift would have been, but longer. And then the innovative part of this is in the hem, it has these circular weights to hold that hem down as you immerse yourself in the bath in the water.
0: This is a very humble piece, as far removed from a grand silk gown as you can get. And it has a sad story behind it. Martha's daughter, Patsy, suffered from epilepsy, and her seizures got worse as she grew older. Desperately seeking
1: a cure, the Washingtons took her to Berkeley Springs. So many of the Washington garments don't survive because they were reused, as would have been typical by extended family members. And then the other part of the Washington story, because of their celebrity, Not only were fabrics reused, they were also cut up and given away as souvenirs and relics. So most of them don't survive. But with this one, we get the sense that after that 1769 visit, when they go to the springs with Patsy, they try the waters. It evidently doesn't have any effect or isn't worth the trip. It's quite a hike to get out there. And so this piece gets packed away. Maybe initially she thought she'd, unpack it and they do a visit next year but it never gets pulled out again and it stays unused Patsy dies in 1773 just a few years later and you also wonder did this you know have all those memories and associations with that visit with the effort she put in to save her daughter was it saved because of the tragedy that it was associated with the
0: other item which is deeply personal is Martha Washington's corset, her stays. I have rarely seen a textile that brings a person so much
1: into focus. These are Martha Washington's stays, so perhaps the most intimate look at, at who she was as a human, a vulnerable human. They, the shaping of them is interesting. They are not fully boned, and this is typical of what you see in later stays in the 1780s and 90s where you're having less structure in the stays and you're having a little more structure in the garments themselves. The measurements and the shape of these actually lines up very well with some surviving gowns we have of hers from the 1790s. They're all covered in silk, boned with baleen, uh, lined in linen, bound with silk. They have these lovely triangular tabs along the edge. And you'll see that they're not pristine. If you start to look where the arms are, you'll see sweat stains. You'll see places where they were mended and repaired and where the baleen broke through and new linen had to be added. So this is a record of her movements, her life, the work that it
0: took. Part of my astonishment is that this garment was saved at all. How many of us put aside and carefully preserve our grandmother's
1: well-used underclothes? It truly is amazing for all the reasons you say. This is so intimate. This is your undergarment. It is so utilitarian in a way. But it was saved by her granddaughter, Martha Custis Peter. And of course, at that time, Martha Washington had become a celebrity, was the founding mother. And so not only was this a record of her grandmother, but also of this great personage who they all were looking up to. Still, I think it's a very personal, a very female thing to do to save something like your grandmother's stays. And thankfully, that family didn't lightly throw anything out. They held on to things and we enormously indebted to them because now we know what the real Martha Washington looked like. So much of of history and history writing tends to inflate these historical figures to build them up to great proportions, or in the case of Mrs. Washington, to reduce her to a more diminutive personality, almost to this fairy-like creature. And this brings us back in touch with the reality.
0: But Mount Vernon was much larger than just the Washingtons. There were several hundred people who needed to be clothed and fed. The largest number were the enslaved. In 1799, there were 317 enslaved men, women, and children on the Washington's five farms, and about a hundred at the Mansion House, which was the hub of the property. The custom here was that each enslaved person was given two outfits a year. There were also indentured and hired white servants, ranging from clerks, overseers, gardeners, weavers and secretaries, who had different agreements which might have specified clothing and laundry allowances. That's a lot of cloth, and the Washingtons tried to do this as economically and cheaply as possible, which is where sheep come in. Here's Catherine Bright Brown, the
2: historic costumer and lead interpreter at Mount Vernon. Well, right now we have Hog Island sheep, and they are genetically as close to the breeds that we think Washington had here. The Hog Island sheep have a bit of a history. So there's a little part of Virginia that actually juts off of Maryland into the Atlantic Ocean, and there is an island named Hog Island. And rumor has it that sheep, the hog island sheep, inhabited that island, the very sturdy breed of sheep. And it was the last place that the ships stopped on the way out to sea. They would pick up the sheep and then slaughter them en route so they had food. Now, Washington is using the sheep for several purposes. They're incredibly important to his textile industry. They produce Better than the average. He has a breeding program in place. He's trying to create more wool off of his sheep. They produce just over five pounds each in the good years. Not all the years are good years when they're well cared for, is what he writes about. The average seemed to be at least a little bit less than that. And there are some years where there's only a couple few pounds. And it is almost always the years he's not here. He is always concerned about the enslaved pilfering, some of the skirting. Uh, I'm sure you know when you shear sheep, you've got to get all those really mucky parts off, and they seem to be rather generous with that at times. And there is flax,
0: too, growing in the fields. All of this is harvested and taken to the spinning house, which is one of the original outbuildings and is still here. The end product is most likely coarse woolen and linen cloth for the enslaved. It is one of the many tragedies of slavery that the individuals who were enslaved are hard to trace. The record is close to blank. And yet here at Mount Vernon we can catch glimpses of the people who worked for the Washingtons. But they're only seen through the eyes of others who wrote about them or accounted for them.
2: We never hear their own voices. So there's record of an enslaved man by the name of Long Jack, who evidently is quite quick at processing the sheep, shearing them. And then the fleece goes to Dolce and Vina, who are working out of the wash house just down the lane from us. And Dolce is also a spinner, so she knows how to wash wool, because you know if you don't wash wool right, you're gonna felt it up. And Dolce and Vina wash it, and then it is being given to someone to card. But we're not sure who. Washington kept pretty careful track of what every adult enslaved worker was doing every day. We have no record, at least by my understanding, of who was doing the carting, but we know that one of Washington's spinners, Miss Kitty, had nine daughters. Seven of them went on to be spinners, and the spinners were almost always enslaved women, but every once in a while, if Washington is a little bit behind, he might bring in a neighbor woman to help spin as well. Anthony and Wally, two
0: enslaved men at Mount Vernon were skilled weavers working at looms in the years before 1781. But then, a British ship
2: arrived in the waters below the house. In 1781, the HMS Savage anchors out there in the Potomac River, and when the Savage leaves, it leaves with, I think, 17 of Washington's enslaved workers, and the two weavers are part of them.
0: They are never found again. And there's an interesting and little-known part of the story here. During the American Revolution, the British offered freedom to enslaved men and women who left their American masters, with the aim of destabilising the American economy. The arrival of the HMS Savage presented an opportunity for the enslaved men and women left at Mount Vernon, who were then under the watch of a white manager, while George Washington was away leading the Continental Army. Many of these former enslaved people later settled as free people in Canada and Trinidad. The incident cost Mr. Washington his weaving expertise,
2: which he had to find elsewhere. Here's Catherine. He loses his weavers, Thereafter, there are periods where there doesn't seem to be a weaver in residence here, either as a hired, indentured, or enslaved. So itinerant weavers were likely coming in. And then, since he's producing clothing for the enslaved, we now have to pass that fabric off to tailors and seamstresses. The seamstresses were almost always enslaved women, again being supplemented by neighbor women on occasion, tailoring a more complex job, of course. Seamstresses put seams together. So they could do things like that shift we see over there. It's all geometric shapes, very easy to cut and assemble. But breeches, much more complex. So there's records of a particular tailor by the name of William Carlin who comes in to do measuring and cutting and then probably passing it off to the seamstresses. Here are skilled people who spin, sew,
0: and weave. What else did they make? What happened to the offcuts of the fabric they were making and cutting and that extra skirting from the sheep fleeces? Perhaps quilts were made and saved and the enslaved seamstresses and weavers took their skills with them when they left Mount Vernon. The book by the great American researcher on black quilting, Cuesta Benbury, called Always There, The African-American presence in American quilts certainly records quilts made in the 1700s. There must have been other material goods as well that are lost to us. The records do show, though, what the enslaved field workers got in terms of clothing
2: every year. So the field workers seem to get essentially two outfits a year. So for summer and winter, two shifts, as I said, that's a shift over there uh, for the women, two body shirts for the men, out of linen or Osnabrigg, which is very coarse linen coming initially from Osnaburg, Germany, but eventually it's made in a variety of places. And one pair of shoes and two pair of stockings. That's what they're getting, that's all, on an annual basis. Oh, and a jacket, I'm sorry, a woolen jacket. And no
0: choice about it. But even with that tiny and simple provision, the farms themselves were unable to produce enough homespun.
1: Here's Amanda. No matter how hard the Washings tried here on the plantation with slave labor to produce cloth, they could never do it as fast and efficiently as some of the operations in Europe, in the Baltic, even in Russia and in England. And so all that is to say, we know that the Washingtons, at the same time they're producing cloth here, they're also importing all different grades of cloth as well and using them for different purposes.
0: And just as they went to Britain for their luxury cloth before the Revolution, the Washingtons turned to British agents to buy cloth for the enslaved, including poor quality cloth, known simply as Negro or slave cloth, and known more specifically as Osnaburg, Russia linen, Dutch blanketing, or Welsh Plains. One of the areas this was produced in was thousands of miles east of Mount Vernon, across the Atlantic, in the hilly uplands of north and central Wales. Here's Liz Millman of the Welsh Plains Research Project. Welsh Plains was a cloth
3: produced in the 1700s in Wales, it was hand-woven by local people on their rented property. Wales was a country that had been taken over by the British way back in the 1200s. So there were English landlords and Welsh workers. So Welsh Plains was the cloth that was produced on hand looms in little cottages and later in special buildings which were easier to manage the increased production of a cloth that became extremely popular as one of the many fabrics that was needed to clothe enslaved workforces in the Caribbean and in America and other parts of the
0: world. Cloth which was made from the coarse wool of hill sheep, went from the valleys of north and central Wales up to Liverpool, one of the great Atlantic shipping ports and a major centre of the slave trade before it was abolished. And at this stage it was a
3: transatlantic triangle. So ships from Liverpool went to the West African coast. There the cloth was used for trade purposes, so that the local African people would require blue cloth or red cloth. They were specific in what they required. They very much valued this cloth Welsh Plains, so that was an interesting area of research. But we also know that the cloth was required in the Caribbean and in the uh, southern states to clothe enslaved workers. And we also know that um, some of the enslaved, some of the plantations also tried to replicate this specific cloth because its qualities were that it was
0: hard wearing and cheap. Conditions in the country areas in Wales were hard, although nothing like enslavement.
3: Poverty in Wales was a real issue. The landowners had. Good properties, but the ordinary people living in rural Wales were subsistence farmers. They were just trying to make a living. It was common for farmers and their families in Wales to undertake the production of cloth during the winter seasons when it's very cold and nothing grows, and then to farm their land in the summer seasons. So advertisements for to work on the farm would often include that men were able to weave because the weaving part of the production of the cloth required men who were strong enough to be able to literally throw the shuttle from side to side. So the factors were offering incentives to local farmers to buy new looms, to have more workers to be tempted to come into little towns to produce the cloth there. And so the dependency on production of the cloth became an issue because then, when the cloth was no longer required for the trade, then there was real abject poverty. And in a way, it's probably to this day, Wales still suffers from that story of at one time being able to create a a reasonable lifestyle, but then the families must have really suffered. And then so many Welsh people either emigrated, so there would have been Welsh weavers going to America or Canada
0: or Australia. Liz says that as time went on, before the slave trade was abolished, the Welsh workers definitely knew where their cloth was going. They certainly did
3: towards the end because there were big campaigns in Wales against supporting the slave trade because it wasn't just the cloth that was an element in this. There were local families who had plantations overseas about whose activities and income would be understood. Putting two and two together about the use of Welsh woolen cloth for clothing enslaved workers might have been a bit difficult, but it was that it was a part of the trade and gradually over the years the trade would have become better and better understood as being a fundamental part of the economy.
0: Wales wasn't the only area that produced this kind of cloth. Scotland produced Osnaburg, there was kendall cotton from the Lake District, which was in fact wool, and similar cloth from Peniston in Yorkshire. So really right across Britain there was
3: activity going on in small communities, larger communities, that was in some way connected with supplying goods for the slave trade, but also for receiving goods into Britain, the sugar, the tobacco. There was all huge industries then to process and distribute those products in whatever format the market took, the cocoa, the rum, whatever it took that people were involved. And from quite an early stage, there was objection to the slave trade. And so people would have known that this was an aspect. But it's difficult to watch Georgian drama with all these gorgeous costumes in all these stately homes and to realise something big must have been going on. If these people actually didn't have to work, they could just, you know, loll around <laughs> and enjoy being wealthy. Yes, there's, there's a lot still to be learnt about that time and for stories to be told honestly.
0: And just as Mount Vernon would love to find a piece of cloth that they could definitively say was grown and processed on the estate itself, so Liz Milman and the other researchers would love to find some Welsh Plains cloth too. Both of these textiles would probably look quite insignificant in themselves, but they have the capacity to tell us something important about the honest story of Britain and America, of who we are and how the wealth of our nations was built. On his death in December 1799, George Washington stipulated that all the enslaved people he owned personally, 124 of them, were to be freed. This Martha Washington did on January the 1st 1801, shortly before her own death. Thank you for listening to this episode of Haptic and Hugh, and a huge thank you to all at Mount Vernon for being so generous with their time and insights. In particular to Amanda Isaac and Catherine Bright Brown, and also to Kenneth Hill, who arranged my visit to Mount Vernon and acted as my guide and cheerleader. I could not have asked for better company. If you would like to see pictures of the textiles at Mount Vernon or read a full script of this podcast, you can find them both on Haptic and Hugh's website at www.hapticandhugh.com forward slash listen. Haptic and Hugh is hosted by me, Joe Andrews, and produced and edited by Bill Taylor. It is an independent production supported entirely by its listeners who bring us ideas and generously fund this podcast either via Buy Me A Coffee or by becoming a member of the new Friends of Haptic and Hue which costs £50 a year or £5 a month. This keeps the podcast truly independent and free from sponsorship and advertising. The first Friends newsletter launches in two weeks' time with a look at how this podcast was put together, as well as an interesting musical follow-up to the episode about Mary Queen Scots. If you'd like to find out more, it's on the website at www.hapticandwho.com forward slash friends. Haptic and Hugh will be back on the first Thursday of next month with another tale of textiles. But meanwhile, I'll leave you with a small story from Sojourner Truth, who was a remarkable woman. Born into slavery in New York State, she escaped in her twenties and spent the rest of her long life preaching and speaking against slavery and in favour of women's rights. Here's a story she told children in 1852. This morning I was walking out and I got over the fence. I saw the wheat holding up its head. It was very big. And I goes up to it and takes hold of it. And you believe it, there was no wheat there. I says, God, what is the matter with this wheat? He says, Sojourner, there is a little weasel in it. Now I hears talking about the Constitution and the rights of man. I comes up and I takes hold of this Constitution. It looks mighty big and I feels for my rights, but there isn't any there. And I says to God, what Constitution? And he says to me, Sojourner, there is a little weasel in it.